recently, the first Friday of every month is the lab. And so wonderful uh, opportunities to worship. We're talking about healing this summer and next Sunday night at 630 in the Garden Chapel, which is a venue we actually don't use for worship now on a weekly basis. It's the Glass Chapel. Um, that's over facing Bassey Road. There'll be a special healing service. You'll, you'll be hearing about healing uh, all summer. And this is an opportunity to come and, and uh, see Jesus and uh, meet Jesus in one another and experience uh, hope and help and healing that is available in him. And that would be next Sunday evening. As I mentioned, it's a privilege to um, to be here this morning. I, I feel connected uh, to you at New Heights in so many ways. Uh, your worship leader, uh, Daryl Smith, I've known since he was 14 years old. When I was a pastor in Bernie, he was in the youth group and he would come over and play basketball with me and several of the guys in the youth group every Sunday afternoon before youth group. And my wife said, I think you broke two rims. Uh, but don't get excited. We had them set at nine feet. But Daryl did break them. Um, and then um, uh, Pastor Michael, before he was pastor, when he was uh, teaching school here in San Antonio, fourth grade uh, teacher, he was my middle son's uh, basketball uh, coach for uh, Little League basketball. And so uh, we go back with Pastor Michael and are very excited that Pastor Michael and Jenna and Grace Ann and Corbin have a wonderful opportunity uh, during the summer to uh, to find refreshment, renewal, uh, and growth. And so we keep them in our prayers. And it's a privilege that a number of us get to come and speak here on Sunday uh, since Michael is not here. Uh, one of the things that um, I wanted to tell you that I've learned from Pastor Scott, who's been here a couple of years ago, is that um, when the scriptures are being read, uh, often we stand and honor the scriptures. But if you're not able to or you're in a situation or room or you might be the only one standing and and uh, that one of the ways we uh, can say to God's word that we honor that is when the scriptures are read, we can just touch our foreheads every once in a while. You'll see people uh, do that. And so as we come to the scriptures, I know you've been standing a lot. I would invite you to stand where you are or to just sit there and you can touch your forehead or stand in your heart in some way. But we're going to be in the fifth chapter of Mark. And those who are able, I'd invite you to stand with me as we come before God's word. This is chapter five. If you'll read with me, starting in verse one. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat. A man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. The man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are so many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. 
there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. And Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But he said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man spread off to visit the towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. Be seated, please. Pastor Scott, who was here a couple weeks ago, uh, takes a group almost every summer to Israel and they climb and hike through many of the biblical sites. And when he gets here, he comes and uh, leads you in a climb up to the steep hillside where likely these pigs were. And Scott talks about the man who lived there, this demoniac, and Scott calls him bloody naked guy. I think that's a pretty good description. Bloody naked guy. And because he's a bloody naked guy, he, he's ostracized. And he lives apart from everybody else in that community. And he lives among the tombs. And he, he is cutting himself there by himself. When I begin to read the story, I think immediately the bloody naked guy who lives among the tombs will eventually, at this rate, find the tombs to be his permanent residence. Not because he cuts himself. I suspect somehow he, he's able to uh, survive that cutting. But there's something else going on. Bloody naked guy is cut off. He's alone. And he's isolated. And when I, tell, I want to tell you something this morning that we actually know from research Loneliness and isolation kills, literally. A number of years ago, they did uh, research in uh, the Alameda County, California, which is where I was born. And one of the conclusions that they came when they studied the group, the control group, and another group is they found this, that people who were isolated were one-third more likely to die in the, in the, uh, the few years ahead than people who were not isolated. And so I remember one uh, guy commenting on the research made this observation. He said, so let this be a lesson. It is better for you to eat Twinkies with friends than eat broccoli alone. You know, we, we think of so many habits that are going to keep us going. But if that habit doesn't include being with other people, we won't be going as long as we think. They also uh, did some uh, study in another place, and, uh, and, and this study was uh, reported by Robert Putnam, who wrote a book called Bowling Alone some years ago. He's a Harvard researcher, and some of you have probably heard the book. It became pretty well known. And basically, the metaphor that he used was bowling. 
And what he found was that social capital, relationships in America were decreasing. People had fewer and fewer relationships, fewer and fewer good friendships. And he noted that while people are bowling at all-time record numbers, the number of people bowling in a league is at an all-time low. And he used that metaphor to talk about Americans and, and how we live our lives disconnected from others. And in his research, this is what he concluded. He said... If you want to cut your chances of dying next year in half, join a group. Cut your chances of dying in half next year by joining a group. Loneliness kills. And if it doesn't kill, it certainly injures and maims. And we look at the bloody naked guy who cuts himself, and we don't know if he's alone because he cuts himself or he cuts himself because he's alone. But loneliness, before it kills us, will injure us in significant ways. You probably are familiar with another story, uh, another study rather, by Renee Spitzer. Some years ago, she studied a group of orphans who were orphaned by war. And there were so many orphans that where they were um, being cared for, they couldn't, they fed everyone and gave them basic needs, but they didn't have enough time and volunteers to attend to every infant um, equally. And so what they found as they looked at this over the years is the infants who got the most touch, attention, and concern, they compared them to the infants that, except for getting food and and some of the basic necessities, were pretty well ignored. And they found that the ignored infants were significantly delayed developmentally compared to the infants who had received adequate touch and care. They found a correlation between the attention we give our infants And the way that they grow up in life, before loneliness will kill us, it will injure us by cutting us off from others. Now, the really bad news I need to share with you this morning is that loneliness is cited over and over by Americans as one of their major problems. 85% of Americans will claim at one time or another to be significantly lonely or isolated in their life. And the fact that loneliness kills That's a devastating combination. The statistics have probably changed since I last saw them, but I saw this, that the average person on Facebook has 287 friends and only two people that they trust enough that they can talk to about important things. That's who we are. 287 friends, but nobody really to share with on a deep level. We're isolated. Uh, many years ago, I was pastor in a very small church, and we had um, uh, a young person in that church. Young was like anybody under 50. And, um, and, and she had three children, and she was visiting. So I went to call on her, and I, I went, and her husband was at work. So, I mean, like, don't try this at home. I wouldn't do that again. Um, but I'm visiting with her, and she tells me that she's very lonely, and she says this. She says, you probably don't think. That a married woman with three children can feel alone. The fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter if we work or we're working at, at work or we're working at home, uh, have lots of children, have several people who live in the neighborhood. We can still be very much alone. And biblically, this is what I want to tell you about loneliness. When I see a person who is isolated or lonely, then I know that the forces of evil have won. When I see a person who's isolated or lonely, I know that the demons are active. How do I know that? I know that because of this. Jesus preached on this one topic more than any other. Anybody know what it is? What did Jesus talk about more than anything else? 
the kingdom of God. Not being born again, not going to worship, kingdom of God. And the way the rabbis in Jesus' day thought about the kingdom of God was that it was God's reign coming all over the earth, connecting everything in harmony. As one theologian says, the kingdom of God is also known as shalom or peace. And it means the interconnectedness of all things and all people. So anytime someone is isolated, anytime someone is lonely, anytime someone is ostracized, we know by definition the kingdom of God is not operational. That in that place, the demons have won. The most interesting thing to me in the story, the most miraculous thing is not what Jesus does by healing this guy who's demon-possessed and who's cutting himself uh, and who's um, acting out in ways that people are afraid and they're trying to control him. To me, the interesting thing is not the miracle, but it happens once after the miracle, which is this. He says to Jesus, he's so grateful, he says, let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, you go home and you tell your family. This is what I interpret that to mean. That the purpose of any healing, whether we have a, we're blind, we have a deaf and dumb spirit, we, we are lame, we, we've seen all sorts of miracles in the Gospels. Whatever it is, the purpose is not the individual's complete physical freedom. The purpose is that they will be connected with other people. The healing paves the way for complete healing, which is in restoration to community. That Jesus doesn't heal us just for our own purposes. Jesus heals us, I think, so that we might be more connected to others. And that if we have a physical issue, if we have a disease, if we have an issue that um, psychologically, whatever issue we have, it is putting a barrier between us and others. And Jesus desires to remove that barrier. Anytime people are isolated, the kingdom of God is losing ground to the evil one. And anytime the kingdom of God moves in your way, your life, and you are healed of a disease, an illness, a psychological malady, whatever you're healed from, the purpose has been that you will be restored to other people. And if you're not restored to other people, your healing is not complete and you are not as whole as you think. Individually, isolated, we are not who God made us to be. And believe me, isolation makes us easy prey for the forces of evil. I never know if a person's isolated because the forces of evil have gotten in their life or the forces of evil got in their life because they were isolated. A number of years ago, our family went on a cruise, and I was really interested that one of our sons on the cruise, uh, we all went and bought a book you know, to read on the ship. And he chose a book about the USS Indianapolis. Anybody know their story? USS Indianapolis sunk by the Japanese in World War II. That's not what they're famous for. It's what, it's what happened after they were sunk. The sharks circled and began to eat many of them. But what they found on the Indianapolis was, who did the sharks go after? The ones who were isolated adrift from the rest of the group. Of survivors, They're the ones who got picked off. When the forces of evil look for someone to inhabit, someone to oppress, someone to hurt, someone to use for their purposes, they look for the isolated. Because they know that they are not completely restored or healed. Because they're walking by themselves. Jesus healed the man 
so that he might be completely healed. And for him to be completely healed, Jesus sent him back to his home, to his family in what this version calls the ten towns. What it's called often in the Bible is called the Decapolis, which means ten cities. And the man goes home. It's a profound story. Here's some of the things I, want, I learned from it. First of all, I learned this, that if you and I are going to be a part of the kingdom of God, combating loneliness, isolation, and ostracism in our world, we're going to need to fight this the way any other illnesses are fought. And that is, first of all, we need to fight with prayer and with Jesus' authority. You need to know if you run into a situation of ostracism or isolation or exclusion, you have the authority and power and command of Jesus to do something about it. You are under Jesus' authority. When you find someone in isolation to begin to move and intersect with them in life. And call in the community to help bring them to wholeness. Because you need to know or can know that without a shadow of a doubt, community is Jesus' perfect will for people on earth. You have his authority. You can go to that demon. You can go to that situation. And you can speak and act because you know 100% that this is what God wants. That's the first thing. Second thing, though, is any problem is never solved until it's recognized. Right? First problem, first step towards solving a problem is recognizing there's a problem. And so I would encourage you to pay attention to other people. To look at them. How will you notice that they're ostracized, lonely, or excluded if you never lock eyes with them, if you never speak with them, if you never shake their hand and look into their gaze? You can't know. The kingdom of God will not be spread until God's people pay attention, not just to God, but to God's people, to God's creation. It's amazing. How Jesus has the ability with even 5,000 people around him to see individuals. Christians need to develop the capacity to see individuals, not crowds. You know, Jesus is walking through Jericho. Tons of people lining the street. So many lining the street that this one guy has to climb a tree. And yet he's the one Jesus sees. And he calls Zacchaeus down. In the face of crowds, Jesus could focus on the individual I read a quote from Soren Kierkegaard, a great philosopher, almost two centuries of two centuries ago, who said this, the crowd dash dash. That is the lie. The crowd, that is the lie. I don't really know what he meant. I thought about stuff playing to the crowd is a lie. If we worry too much about others opinions, maybe that's the lie. Or maybe it's this. If we focus on the crowd and miss the people who make up the crowd, That is the real deception. Maybe that's the lie. What God is trying to do is form a people into a community. But these people are always individuals. Daryl's not here today, but I guarantee you this is one of his favorite quotes. I want to pass on to you because I've heard Daryl quote it. It's from Dallas Willard. And it says this. The aim... Of God in create in uh, the aim of God in creation is to uh, is to create or the aim of God in human history is to create um, a community of human beings with God as its principal sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. 
I'll say that one more time. I'll say it better. The aim of God in human history is the creation of a community of human beings who have God as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. What does God want? God wants people all together and God wants to be in the midst of them, living with them. But those people, before they ever become community, have to be seen individually. We have to notice them. One of my favorite researchers is Brene Brown from the University of Houston. And you may have seen her TED Talk on vulnerability. It's fairly well known. But she was talking about getting a pedicure, which she gets on occasion. And the two people, women across from her getting a pedicure, the entire time are on their cell phones. They never say word one to the women working with them. So when it's over and they leave, Brown says to the pedicurist, you know, basically, does that happen often? And, and, and how do you feel about that? And she says this, that the women can be on their phone the whole time, she says, because they do not think of us as people. Christians need to think of other people as people. And then Brown talks about driving through a fast food drive through And as she's waiting in line to pay, her phone rings and she takes the call and she's talking with a person. And they get up to the window and, and she starts to pay and then she finishes her phone call and realizes that she really hasn't interacted with the person at the window. And so before she drives off, she says, I'm so sorry. When I was in line, my phone rang. I decided I needed to take the call. But I did not mean to ignore you or act as if you were not there. Thank you for what you do and, and forgot what else she said. And the woman got a tear in her eye and said, nobody ever does that. Nobody ever talks to us. And then she says, they don't even see us. What does it take to fight loneliness, isolation, ostracism? It takes people who pay attention, who see and who care. No one should be able to say they don't think we're people. No one should be able to say they didn't see us. No one should enter this building or leave from this building without the feeling that they were noticed. No one everywhere you go who crosses your path should feel that they were unnoticed. Even the man at the corner with a cardboard sign. Whether you give him something is what you can work that out with God, how it's best to help. But what you can't do is look the other way. That is a human being. See people. Notice them. So know that you have Jesus' authority to attack loneliness on all fronts with everything that Jesus gives you. Know that you can't do it if you don't pay attention. And finally, when you find people, you need to be on their side and identify with them, even if they are not like you at all. One of my favorite um, theologians is a guy at Yale. His name is Volf, V-O-L-F. And he's a refugee. He's an escapee from Bosnia. He knows what ethnic cleansing and genocide look like. And he wrote a theological reflection as a New Testament professor on this. And the reflection was called Exclusion and Embrace. And he basically said, for every one of us, we have the same two choices when we meet somebody who is not like us. We can exclude them. Or we can embrace them. That's it. There's not really a third option. Those are the choices Jesus chose to embrace. We embrace by identifying with them as best we can, getting on their side. Now, there's a very famous story about a rabbi who was eating at a wealthy person's house. 
and uh, the woman who was serving jar for them out of uh, a vase dropped it. It broke. The precious wine went everywhere. The rabbi caught her eye and saw the woman's look of like, this is not going to go well for me. So immediately the rabbi took his elbow and with his goblet knocked the chalice on the floor and it cracked. The host had no choice. He couldn't lecture the woman without lecturing the rabbi, his distinguished guest. And suddenly the rabbi and the woman had become one in their difficulty, one in their ostracism, one in community. And it it went well for her and for both of them. That's what it's like. We begin to notice people who are alone in the power and authority of Jesus, begin to address it by taking their side as best we can in whatever way we can. And I believe we will find in the power of the Holy Spirit healing beginning to happen. Go home, Jesus told the man. And apparently he did. But we don't really know what happened exactly, but we get a hint. If you go further in the Gospel of Mark into chapter 10, it talks about Jesus going back through the region of the ten cities. Oh, by the way, did I tell you the ten cities were pagan cities? Hellenistic cities? Like they were ten times more pagan than Vegas? You know, just so you don't think you're in Branson. This is where he's going. And he's telling his story. So Jesus, this Jew, comes back through this territory of all these foreigners and we find out they show up in crowds. Who told them? How did they get there? We don't know. We can only guess that the man who was healed completed his restoration by returning home to community, shared that with that community his healing testimony, and that community came out to meet the healer on the road. Anytime a person is alone, The evil one is one. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, together, we can do something about it. And we can help bring other people to the wholeness and restoration that God envisioned. But we only do it when we do it in community. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God. I pray for each person present and for whatever might be oppressing them or troubling them in any way. And I pray that you would already be moving in their life, not only to heal them of that, but to perfect a greater healing by moving them toward others in you. I pray that your Holy Spirit might draw us closer to you and that we might find as we're drawn closer to you, we're drawn closer to each other. Pray that your Holy Spirit might draw us closer to each other and we might find that in that we are drawn closer to you. Lord, I pray for a day when all things and all people are interconnected and interrelated harmoniously in your power and your love. This we ask in your son's precious name. Amen. We're going to continue on in a little bit more worship and time for reflection or prayer. We'll ask the prayer team if you'll go ahead and come up over to the side.